it's not that I was the only person of color that was on the stage, but it was usually myself and maybe one other person. But most of the time I was the only one out of maybe 10, sometimes up to 20 girls. The same thing when, when we went to dance competitions, it wasn't, it just wasn't very diverse at all on the stage. I always considered myself the token. Does talking about your money make you cringe? Are you tired of fighting about finances? Do you want to stop sabotaging your financial happiness? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Over the past decade, she has empowered thousands of people to break money silence at home and at work. Now, here is Kathleen. This episode is sponsored by Age Up. Did you know that one in three 65-year-olds live into their 90s, but few can afford it? Age Up provides supplemental income to help fill in the financial gaps that come with a long life. To find out more, visit age-up.com. Today, I am here with Emily Davenport. She is the co-owner of Village Dance and Company, which is a recreational dance studio located in Michigan. I have to say that Emily is a member of my team. She works with me as a virtual assistant, which is kind of a side job for her, where she provides social media management, content management, and virtual administrative services. And I absolutely love working with her. Um, Today, we are going to be talking about her love of dance and her dance studio. And she has created um, and strives to create a family-oriented, fun, diverse, and inclusive learning environment for her students of all ages and all dance levels. So I love the idea that all people are welcome. And so Emily and I started to chat about everything that's going on in the world. And I thought, I want to know more about her as a dancer, more about her as a person, and just have a conversation about uh, what it's like to have a diverse dance studio. So welcome, Emily, to the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Kathleen. I'm super excited. Yeah, I am really excited to learn more about you because we don't get a chance to talk about this kind of stuff that much. So I know you work on my team, as I just said, and you, but you have this real passion for dance. So tell me a little bit about kind of what age you fell in love with dance and, and why it's such a passion of yours. Well, I started dancing when I was three years old. My parents put me in a local dance studio and I did ballet my entire dance career. So from age three up until now. (laughs) But I think I really started falling in love with dance once I got old enough to understand, once I was maybe like seven or eight. I just really loved being on the stage. I loved learning the dance routines and I just kind of felt like it all came naturally to me, like it was what I was supposed to be doing. And it's just, it was just always so fun for me. So I would say probably seven or eight is when I really fell in love with it. And then I started doing different styles of dance. So I studied ballet, tap, jazz, hip hop, lyrical, and I did dance competitions as well. And then I kind of took a break when I was in high school and I started back up again in college. I was on a dance team in community college, two community colleges. So I've been dancing for a very long time. 
And wow. Wow. Since three, I yes. can relate <laughs> not in terms of my dance career. Cause my dance career, you don't know this started when I think I was seven and ended when I was 12. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So someday I'll share some of those lovely pictures with you, but I did fall in love with the stage. So that part stuck. <laughs> yes. um, but tell me, Emily, when did you decide I'm going to make this more than you know, something I do as a hobby or something I do as a sport, I'm going to actually make this part of my career. Well, I've always been really passionate about finding something that I love to do and making it a career. And I kind of shied away from dance for a little bit until I got back into it in college. And I realized that it was what I really loved to do. And just being on the stage was something that I really enjoyed doing. So it was... I believe 2010, maybe 2011, when I decided that I wanted to start teaching dance, I was at a community college at the time, and I was a part of a dance team. There was about 20 of us on the team, and my co she was the same age as us, but she was like our coach. She was teaching younger kids, and I was like, I think I really want to do that as well. So I looked into my local recreation center, and I decided that I wanted to teach, and they had openings, and it kind of just went from there. So I really went more so of the teaching route because I really wanted to be able to share my love of dance with kids because that's when I fell in love with dance too. So that's sweet. So, that is a career, you know, whether you're teaching kids or whether you're up on the stage, that counts. That's a career. Yes. Yes. And I think it took me a little while to realize that I always thought, oh, I have to be a, like a professional dancer or professional ballerina for it to be a career, but you're right. It's just as much as a career too. So it's something that I really enjoy. And I really enjoy seeing the kids light up the way that I do on the stage too. That's cool. And so one of the things we started talking about was you know, everything that's going on in our world right now, the racial tension. And we started to have very honest conversations about the fact that I have white privilege and that you grew up uh, in a biracial, or you are biracial, and you grew up with white parents. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And so part of what your experience has been as a uh, dancer has potentially been different. And so the question that I have is, you know, when I think about dance, and I, I don't think about this in terms of like a dance school, but I think about prima ballerinas and dance studios that are pretty well known. And historically, it's a very white, affluent kind of pursuit. So I'm wondering, did you notice that about the industry as a little girl and as you were kind of moving up in terms of your dance ability? And if so, how did that impact you? Or if not, why do you think it didn't impact you? Yeah, I think it's, I have a very interesting perspective because like we discussed, I am biracial, but I was adopted into an all white family. So I believe that my experience is very unique in that. What I will say is what I've noticed when, and as a child, I don't really know that I noticed it until I got a little bit older, but the one thing that I remember when I was little is when we would watch the recital tapes back, I was always very easy to pick out on the recital tape because I looked different than my friends that were on the stage with me. And it's not that I was the only person of color that was on the stage, but it was usually myself and maybe one other person. But most of the time I was the only one out of maybe 10, sometimes up to 20 girls. The same thing when, when we went to dance competitions, it wasn't, it just wasn't very diverse at all on the stage 
I always considered myself the token. <laughs> That's a term that sometimes yeah. we, we use it for, you know, maybe the only person of color that is in that particular space. So that was the first thing that I noticed. I never felt excluded being That's great. That's great. Somebody did something right, if that's the case. Yes, I never felt excluded, and I'm not sure if it was because as I was a child and I just didn't really realize it. Um, also, growing up in a white family, it was just kind of the norm to me. So that was kind of the first realization that I had, that I looked different than the other dancers that I was around and that there weren't very many on the stage that looked like me. And then I would say the second instance is in dance, everything is about being uniform, right? You see everyone on the stage and they all have the same costume. We all have the same tights. We all have the same shoes. So even one thing that is very interesting in the industry is up until possibly even maybe seven or eight years ago, most of the tights that we would wear are catered to look like paler skin tones. So for example, we would all wear the same color tights, which would be considered tan or suntan colored tights, but they didn't always look right on my skin tone because they're supposed to, they're supposed to look like a flesh tone colored tight, but they really were made for paler skin tones. And that's something that's still kind of a debate in the industry because people will are, will say that we want everyone to look uniform so everyone has to wear the same thing. But then you also have to think about, we wanna be inclusive of dancers that of are a darker skin tone because not everyone obviously has the same skin tone. There are many different shades. So there's kind of like this debate going on, well, do we keep everyone the same? And it's more so prominent in classical ballet because you have the classical ballet pink tights which looking back on it when they were when you know ballet was created the tights were to they were supposed to look like skin tone color but they were made for white dancers yeah so you now know, i've never thought about that aspect and i mean once again i think this is where i'm i'm learning so much about things that i took for granted so when i was a little girl and a dancer you know, when I, the part about being uniform, the part where it impacted me and certainly later in life when I worked as a counselor working with women who had uh, body image issues, where it impacted them tended to be around, you know, I'm tall. So my height, I would stick out for height or somebody might not be, or actually many people aren't the very thin ideal of a prima ballerina. And in fact, you know, the industry is known for having a lot of eating disorders. And then when we broaden that out, Emily, and this is what, you know, I really enjoy having these conversations with you, it's realizing there's so many levels to that. And that certainly there is such a bias that this is supposed to be a white sport and you're supposed to look a certain way. And so for you and what you're doing, you know, how do you work with that in your studio and how do you make sure that this isn't going to negatively impact the kids that you work with? Mm -hmm. Well, I will say, I believe that there is progress that is being made in the dance industry and you will see differences between classical ballet companies and contemporary companies. I am happy to say that now, ever since I started teaching about seven years ago, so I have access to 
costume books and things that the dance costume companies put out, right? So I'm able to see all of the new things and I'm seeing new shades of tights for all different skin tones. So that is something that makes me very happy. And I let my girls know like, hey, they have shades that are for you. So we're going to pick the the color that was going to match you the best. And I make sure they know, you know, I wasn't able to do that. So I'm happy that we're able to do that now. The other thing that I think is very important is that dancers see other dancers that look like them. So I really try to, you know, have posters of people like Misty Copeland, or I show them videos of people like Gregory Hines so that they can see other dancers that look like them. And I'll tell them about different dance companies like Alvin Ailey American Dance Company, which I didn't know about many of the diverse dance companies until I was in college. That was actually the first time when I saw other dancers who looked like me, a stage full of diversity was when I was in college. So I try to make sure that my students are learning about all of the different dancers and there is diversity in dance, but it is important that we are sharing that and sometimes it's a little bit more difficult because you really do have to look for it but i feel like it finally is it's there and with the internet i mean we have access to all of these different things so i think that's i mean i think that that's great and it, i remember when is it misty copeland i remember when mm -hmm. she um came on the scene i'm sure she danced for years before we all knew about her in order to be skilled enough to be on the scene but what a big deal that was as opposed to of course there's people uh, of color who dance and who are good at this and you know but but looking back i didn't realize you know there was such a splash and such a focus and certainly gregory hines as well and the fact that and and i'm sure i'm you know that other people and this is where i need to learn and grow can name more people who are high profile in dance that are people of color. But I have to tell you, those are the two people I know about. I don't know about a lot of other people, especially in more of a classical dance setting. And I think that's where the work is, is let's, you know, let's not have to have kids look on the internet to see somebody that looks like them. Let's make sure that they're represented in these higher profile magazines or, or you know, whatever the dance, um, <laughs> as you could tell, my dance career ended. So I don't know the dance magazines, but I do know People Magazine and things like that, where, <laughs> you know, you definitely see one image and that's changing and certainly has changed. And so one question, because you know this in, in the fact that we work on a team together, is that I talk a lot about the gender wage gap. And more recently, in the past couple of years, really making sure that I'm pointing out that it's not just a wage gap that is the same for all women. It really does vary based on the color of your skin and your ethnicity, which is just horrendous, but unfortunately that's the case. And so in the dance world, is there also a gender? Well, there's a I don't know if there's a gender pay gap, but is there a gender pay gap? And then also, is there a gap based on your skin color that you're aware of? There is definitely a gender pay gap. I actually researched and I looked up American theaters salaries, which is Misty Copeland, that's where she is. And their highest compensated dancers are male dancers. And Misty Copeland is one of their most well-known and she's compensated in other ways. We know that through endorsements and things like that, but she wasn't one of the top 
compensated dancers, they were all male dancers. So I do believe that that is a standard across the industry. As far as with race, I am not sure. And I think part of the issue is there is not a lot of, from what I could find, there was not a lot of research done about salaries within the dance industry overall. And there is a huge pay gap from, I saw anywhere, you could make anywhere from maybe 20,000 a year to 170,000 a year. And there's really, depending on what genre, what style it is. I mean, and when you're thinking of dancers and choreographers, you're thinking of ballet companies, but then there's also music videos. There's the commercial side of things. That's a totally different category with totally different wages. So it actually was very difficult for me to research and find anything that talked about any of the wage gaps, but especially with race and gender. I mean, hmm. so that was very interesting to me. That was yeah, very the interesting lack of, to me. I think the lack of data really speaks volumes. Yes. Because, and the other thing I just want to note for anybody who's listening in, if you notice how Emily just answered that question, that's exactly why she's on my team, because she researches things and really <laughs> thinks things through and is very strategic. And in her role with me in the social media role, she really is very helpful and she does special projects around research. And so I love that I asked that question and you had already researched it. So thank you for, for doing my legwork as always, Emily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what do you do in addition to making sure the kids tights, you know, and this is important, making sure that it matches their body, that they see images of other dancers of all different uh, races and, and genders. What else do you do to make sure that your dance studio is inclusive and that you are doing what you feel like you want to do to, to help with this situation of inequality in this world? I think the main thing that I do is I just make sure that all of the kids know that they're welcome. And I think even though we touched on this before, it is very important for them to see other dancers that look like them. So one example would be on our website, we have a very diverse group of dancers on the website. So if someone comes and they want to be a part of our village that we have, they see that there are other dancers there that look like them. So in addition to that, I make sure that my staff is also very diverse because that's important as well. And I wanna be able to bring in, you know, guest teachers that are of all different dance backgrounds and all different ethnicities so that they can really learn from a wide group of people and see other people that look like them. Because my main goal for them is to know that they can do whatever it is that they want to do with dance, whether that's just do it through high school, whether they want to do it through college, whether they want to teach, whether they want to move on to be professional. Because I think that sometimes if you don't see other people doing it, and not all the time, but if you don't see other people like you that are doing it, you might not feel welcome there. Like, oh, this isn't really for me because I'm only seeing one type of dancer. And I think that's what really, when I was in college, my eyes were really wide open because I honestly saw, you know, one type of dancer most of my life. And then I saw Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater and the entire stage is filled with diverse dancers from different backgrounds. And so I was like, wow, there really are other people who there, there, it is, it is possible and it is, it's here. I just haven't seen it. 
Well, so, and there's a saying that a lot of the women that I work with in um, diversity and inclusion say is that if you can't see it, it's hard to be it. So what you're talking about is having that experience. And it sounds like you want kids in your studio to have that experience much earlier than you because college is pretty late. And so let me ask you emotionally, what was that like to have that experience of being like, whoa, this is a dance studio that really is diverse. And, and a lot of these people look like me. Mm -hmm. It's predominantly people of color that are part of Alvinale American Dance Theater. Um, and it was very eye-opening and I was just grateful for it because I always thought that there was this standard where it's like, oh, well, I was always going to be the only one. So seeing someone like Misty Copeland, you know, she broke the mold. And I think that it's really important for kids to be able to see that there's not just one type of dancer. It's not just someone who is thin and white, <laughs> could be someone of all, all backgrounds and all all bodies, all body shapes as well. Yeah, body shapes and sizes is what I always say. I think it's really important that, you know, for women especially, but certainly for men, that we let people know that we don't come in one shape or size and we certainly don't come in one color uh, and that that's okay and that's accepting. So I, I just love the work that you're up to. And before I ask you about where people can find out more about you, I have one more question and it's, what can somebody like me who's experienced white privilege, who certainly for the past couple of years has been aware, but, but with everything that's going on, hyper aware that we really need to do something different in our society. And so do you have an idea of one thing or a couple things that people like me can do to actually help move us forward? Because I, I just feel like we all need to be responsible and take action. I would say use your platform, which I believe you've been doing this already, Kathleen, but I would say use your platform to amplify people of color's voices because a lot of times they're there, but they don't have the platform that uh, their white counterparts do. And so I feel like it's important that they are able to speak, which I appreciate you letting me come on here and do that and us having these conversations. But I believe that it's important that they are able to tell their stories and share their experiences, but also research. As you can tell, I love to research. <laughs> so, I mean, a quick Google search will pull up anything that you want to know, I feel, you know. So I feel like it's important to research and share, but also let people of color share their experiences where they might not have been able to do so before. Right. No, those are great two pieces of advice. And I think what we'll do is list some resources in the show notes, things that you've mentioned, so people can kind of check those out. And also, I want people to know more about your dance studio and your virtual assistant skills. So where can they find out more about both of those things? So the dance studio, we have a Facebook page. So it's facebook.com slash village dance and company. And we also have a website, which is villagedance.net. So you can find out more about us there. And then for my virtual assistance services, I have a company called Turning Point Social. So right now, if you look me up, I'm on LinkedIn. If you just search for Emily Davenport, you can find me on there. Excellent. And can you spell Davenport for people? 
Yes, it's D-A-V-E-N-P-O-R-T. Awesome. I may be the only person that has trouble spelling, but I always like to do that. But again, we'll put all of this in the show notes with the links. And I am just so honored that we could take our relationship, our collegial relationship to the next level and have this honest and open conversation. And, and you've really inspired me over the past couple of months to see what I could do differently. And so I just want people to know that. And my hope is this isn't our last conversation and that your platform continues to grow. But it's been really great breaking money silence with you today, Emily. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is sponsored by Age Up. Did you know that one in three 65-year-olds live into their 90s, but few can afford it? AgeUp provides supplemental income to help fill in the financial gaps that come with a long life. To find out more, visit age-up.com. Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information, or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com.